Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes, uh, joined once again by Max Boot, columnist for The Washington Post, well-known author, never Trumper, ex-conservative. How else should I describe you, Max? Uh, Bulwark uh, subscriber. <laughs> even even better. So we, <laughs> we should give people a little bit of a warning. It's It's raining here in Wisconsin, so that means the dogs are in the house. So you may hear dogs in the background. There are three very large dogs here, and they are not respecters of podcasts. And and Max, you have you have your own challenges, right? Just, uh, but yes, just I have some home remodeling going on. So fair warning. It's you know it's not uh, a cadre of of Trumpkins breaking in to to attack me. It's just uh, you know remodeling going on. Well, you know, as we as we uh, open up the podcast today, uh, we have the Senate uh, slouching towards uh, passing the infrastructure bill. Uh, they're delaying it. I think the last thing I, I saw was that they may have uh, they may be voting at like three a.m. on Tuesday or something. But apparently, it's going to pass based on the votes we had over the weekend. Meanwhile, latest developments uh, down in uh, Florida. Um, where uh, Ron DeSantis is 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 digging in his heel, blaming blaming disease infested uh, and infected immigrants for all of his problems. Uh, certainly not his own policies, um, but of of course, you know he continues to wage his war against mask and vaccine mandates. But he's getting some pushback. Uh, late yesterday, late uh, Sunday, uh, a federal judge temporarily blocked his his ban on uh, private companies like the cruise lines from requiring vaccines. Norwegian Cruise Lines was uh, cleared to require uh, the COVID vaccines for guests and crew members after this federal judge named Kathleen Williams gave the company a preliminary injunction of blocking this uh, Florida law championed by DeSantis that would have fined the cruise company for requiring vaccines. So, Max, just a good, before we get into other stuff, I just it is so strange to me to watch the, the sort of the ideological incoherence of small government, don't tread on me conservatives, passing laws, telling private companies that they can't do this or that. I mean, isn't it's just if you're looking for any, you know, thread of consistency, good luck. It's just, you know, craziness across the board, Charlie. I mean, it's interesting to uh, compare and contrast uh, the two news developments that you mentioned. The first one, of course, being the Senate on track to to pack to pass a an infrastructure bill uh, with a lot of Republican votes, something like eighteen Republicans, I think, voted uh, to end the filibuster and, and Mitch McConnell among them. And so it's possible to say, based on that, and some people have David Brooks, for example, made this argument last week in the New York Times, saying, "Well, you know, there's actually this more responsible." Republican Party out there that is willing to legislate, that is willing to engage in bipartisan compromise. And, you know, it is true that there are, you know, people on the Hill who are still kind of old fashioned Republican legislators and, you know, the ability to pass, you know, $550 billion in new spending is something that is that is attractive to them, especially when they don't have to, they're not forced to, to sign off on tax hikes or, or spending cuts to pay for it. But if you actually look at what is the true face of the Republican Party, is it these 18 Republicans in the Senate who are willing to pass an infrastructure bill? Or is it crazy Ron DeSantis basically saying no mask mandates, no vaccine mandates, no, you know, any any measure to try to curtail the worst pandemic in a century is an infringement on civil liberties? I mean, it's just, 
sheer nuttiness. And I think that is the true voice of the Republican Party today. And I, I imagine you would agree. DeSantis is, is very popular. He's positioning himself uh, for a potential run for the Republican presidential nomination if if Trump doesn't run. And he's doing it based on his record of basically doing as little as possible to fight this deadly pandemic, which has killed over 600,000 Americans. And for some reason, that is appealing to Republicans. I mean, what is what does that say about the state of the of the Republican Party today? Well, you used the word the, the nuttiness of it, and on one level, it is uh, you know completely sort of crazy. You, you have you know Rand Paul out there with a video telling people that they ought to resist the CDC guidelines. But on the other hand, it, it's quite intentional, and it's very much a, a a conscious decision on Ron DeSantis's part that this is the way he's going to build his his presidential run is by uh, turning the the coronavirus into a culture war, and and really up until recently. It's been working for him. I mean, it's been a successful political strategy, given the given the tribal nature of conservative politics. Right. I mean, and, and now and now he's sort of stuck. I mean, this is part of the problem. You know, when you light the culture war fire, you know, bonfire and it, it, it rages out of control, it's too late to say maybe that was a bad idea. So he's kind of stuck now, isn't he? He is stuck. And I think what what he and other Republican leaders are finding is that after a year and a half of trashing the CDC, calling Dr. Fauci a criminal, saying you should not listen to any public health guidance, they're kind of screwed right now in trying to get people to vaccinate. I mean, when Ron DeSantis says that vaccine passports are an infringement of liberty, and and of course you have the more extreme Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others who are saying that vaccine passports are like the Holocaust. When ordinary Republicans hear that, a lot of them, what they're hearing is not vaccine passports are bad. What they're hearing is vaccines are bad, which is why you have such a low vaccination rate among Republicans. I mean, that's the primary reason why uh, 40% of the country, of the adults, 40% of the adults in this country still have not gotten a single shot. The largest group of that is Republicans who are just convinced that, you know, vaccines are some kind of deep state conspiracy, even though you can easily imagine a different narrative where they say, this is the Trump vaccine. Trump, you know, started Operation Warp Speed. I'm going to get it. If it's good enough for my Uber leader, Donald Trump, I too should get vaccinated. But no, that's not the message. The message is don't listen to the CDC. Dr. Fauci is a criminal. Vaccines are a deep state conspiracy. So no wonder you're having so much unnecessary hospitalization and dying going on right now in the red states. It's a tragedy, but it's a a tragedy of Republicans' own making. It, it, it is. And, and I have to admit, I, I Amanda Carpenter has a great piece in The Bulwark today where she's basically saying she's, you know, suffering from fa- fa- compassion fatigue, kind of fed up with uh, this this vaccine hesitancy or refusal. Um, I, I, I do think we're sort of beyond the point of thinking, you know, what what argument should we use? What inducement should we we, we use at, at some point? Look, um, society has to protect itself. The people who, you know, um, are still vulnerable, including um, millions of children who cannot be vaccinated, need to be protected. And that's going to require, I think, a more robust, and I think you agree with me on this, uh, more robust requirements of proof of, of vaccination. Uh, I'm, I actually applaud the companies that are requiring vaccinations. And I don't think this is a radical infringement on freedom. This is something that at one time our society understood was necessary in order to protect us against pandemics. Now, it's also true 
that many of the companies that are imposing this uh, probably have workforces that are already uh, vaccinated. But um, I, I, I do think that the the requirements of, of, uh, of, va- of vaccines is headed in the right direction. You wrote about this a couple of days ago, didn't you? Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely essential because, you know, we spent six months on the voluntary approach trying to convince people to get vaccinated. And it worked for some, but for a lot, it just is not working. We're still seeing 40% of the adult population has not gotten a single shot. That's why the Delta variant is on a rampage. That's why cases and hospitalization levels are skyrocketing, especially in places with low vaccination rates. We cannot keep making logical and reasonable arguments to people who will not listen to reason. We need vaccine mandates. And this should not be something that is, this is not new or radical. It goes back to George Washington in 1777, mandating smallpox inoculations for his troops. Every single person who goes to school in this country has to provide proof of vaccination against a host of illnesses, mumps and and rubella and, 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 and others. And we don't think about those those diseases because they've been all but eradicated because we have universal vaccination requirements. Why should the worst plague in a century be the only one that doesn't have any mandatory vaccination requirement? I mean, we have the vaccine. We can stop this disease. We need to make it mandatory. Anybody who goes into an indoor space in public needs to show proof of vaccination, restaurants, hotels. Uh, movie theaters, and critically, airplanes. I think President Biden needs to mandate that airline passengers have to provide proof of vaccination. We cannot keep going with this voluntary approach because it is not working. It is allowing this virus to rampage out of control, and it is imperiling school reopenings in September. It is, and and that's going to be a a huge problem. Um, Amanda runs through all the arguments that we're hearing from people, oh, you know, the the, you know, the FDA hasn't you know, done the final approval, which they need to, uh, you know, that, that you know, we haven't shown proper respect for the people who are hesitant. And she says, look, you know, um, maybe there's some validity, but but if more than 600,000 deaths haven't done enough to convince these folks to get the vaccine, then why do we assume that a better press release or something is going to change their mind? And this is, I think, a really interesting thing in her article. She says, if these headlines don't convince them, nothing will. And, and then links to vocal anti-vaccine broadcaster dies from COVID-19 complications. Unvaccinated dad records days of regret in a hospital, makes heartbreaking requests for daughter's wedding in case he dies. Or another one, I should have gotten the damn vaccine. Las Vegas father of five dies after contracting COVID during vacation. Or an Alabama mother who lost her son to COVID says not getting the vaccine is her biggest regret. These stories are, and I'm not being ghoulish, but I mean, they're heartbreaking and they're tragic. But if these stories don't convince people, I just, I don't know what would, right? I mean, this they, is the they're, they're not, yeah, they're not going to convince people. And I, you know, I see people like Marco Rubio on Twitter saying, you know, provide people the information and they'll make the right decision. Well, they're not making the right decision. And we do not take this voluntary approach with a lot of other public health threats. Do we say like, you know, we'll present the dangers of smoking. And then if you want to smoke in indoors in public, it's up to you. Or we present information on the dangers of drunk driving. And then if you want to get loaded and get in the car, it's up to you. No, we do not give people the choice to endanger other people's health. We make it mandatory that you have to take certain steps to protect society. And we have to do that in the case, again, this is the worst pandemic in a century. We have to act when we have the ability to stop it. 
So um, before I, I want to talk to you about your recent piece about uh, coups, um, but you know, I just want us to double back on on this uh, this uh, infrastructure vote. We haven't spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about this, mainly because I don't know. It's just it's I, I, it's it's isn't it strange, Max? I mean, the things that we used to really care deeply about in the past, we just don't care that much about. Um, well, I, I think I, the reality I, is people didn't actually care that much about it in yeah. the past. That's why it didn't yeah. get done because well, people enjoy the culture wars because that's a more fun thing to to get worked like, up I, about I, because I, it's I hard to get worked up about you know spending on bridges and roads. Yeah, no, I, by the way, I, I completely agree with your point about that DeSantis is really the face of the Republican Party right now, as opposed to the 18 senators. On the other hand, um, I do think it is kind of interesting that uh, on on this vote, uh, Trump and, you know, the Trump allies have gone all in and trying to uh, bully Republican senators not to support this bipartisan compromise, threatening them with defeat, threatening them with primaries. And as far as I can tell, uh, based on the votes over the weekend, they have managed to shake loose not one Republican senator, which is like, hmm, interesting moment that none of the bullying, none of the threats has had any effect whatsoever. And uh, that, that's got to be kind of frustrating down in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't I read too I, much into the independence. Yeah, that, you know, that's but, what I, I was going to say. I wouldn't read too much into it because this is not an issue that, re, that, that Trump voters actually care about. You can see on the issues they care about, like the big lie or the January 6th attack, you're not going to see a lot of Republicans on the Hill willing to break with Trump over that infrastructure. Nobody really thinks they're going to be defeated in a primary because they voted for the infrastructure bill. No, I th- and I think that's that's uh, that's a, a, a good point. It is interesting. There was always this this line that I think people had a hard time recognizing that you could you were allowed as a Republican to cross Trump as long as it was, it was one of these public policy issues where you cannot cross him as on the culture war or on his you know his own legal problems. So I have to admit that I am uh, I am still somewhat obsessed with. Uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's visit to Hungary and his cl- and his claim that Hungary is freer, more free than the United States. He says, "I love America. I think my country is the best in the world." But don't tell me America is more free than Hungary. And then he doubled down. He said, "Who's freer? If you're an American, the answer is painful to admit." I think this is Orwellian on one level, but I have to say that what he's doing is moving the so-called Overton window to make authoritarianism and illiberalism more normal for millions of conservatives. And I think people need to be alarmed. I know there's there's, there's going to be people out there saying, why do you spend so much time talking? Why do you give him a platform? It's because, in fact, um, the, you know, in the post-Trump world, there's going to come an era, uh, come a, a point, sorry, not an era, it comes a point when Donald Trump is not the problem, but this illiberalism, this, this, this illiberalism, this authoritarianism is the real challenge. I mean, that's what we're going to be up against. And that's going to last a long time. It's not just Donald Trump's personality or his Twitter feed. It's the fact that they're feeding this beast of believing that maybe we ought to use, you know, the state to crush liberals. Maybe we don't actually believe in democracy and, you know, Max, you and I have known these folks have been around for a long time. They've always been there in the corners, but now they're moving into the mainstream of the right. And I think we need to sound the alarm about that. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's a sign of something that somebody like Tucker Carlson, who I think probably doesn't believe in a whole heck of a lot other than his desire for money and fame, 
this is where opportunists like Tucker Carlson are going. They're migrating towards fascism because they see that's where the Republican Party is heading. I think that is a very, you know, alarming indicator of of the state of the Republican Party today. And I think that the reason for it is very simple, which is that white conservatives in America feel like they're losing power because they're losing uh, demographic demographically. They're you know because we're going to be a majority minority nation by the 2040s. And so they feel like power is slipping away. You always hear this mantra from from conservatives about how liberals have taken over every institution, you know, media, corporations, religion, universities. They're all against this, even though, you know, if you look at it objectively, Republicans are actually overrepresented in in the Senate. They're overrepresented in the Supreme Court based on their share like of they're the, victims. They're victims. Right. They feel in, like in, they're victims. Yeah. And so Basically, they feel like, bottom line, Charlie, they feel like white people are losing power in America, especially white, rural, conservative people are losing power in America, and they don't feel like they can win democratically anymore, and so now they're just going to win undemocratically if they have to. So for people who think, and and there are going to be people who think, oh, come on, Max and Charlie, you guys are way over the top, you're starting off the week, and you're exaggerating all of this, throwing around these words— I would urge people uh, to, to to check out this uh, Twitter thread from a, from this right-wing troll named Kurt Schlichter. Now, before I, I dismiss him as a right-wing troll, understand that he is Hugh Hewitt's backup radio host. He's a contributor to townhall.com. Just last week, he was a featured guest on Fox News. So this, this is a, someone who reflects many of the attitudes that you have on the the right. And he sort of went off this weekend. And let me just read this to folks. Just listen to this. And and keep in the back of your mind, we talk a lot about the guardrails and who are the watchdogs of the right and the people who, you know, are the referees. Um, If if in fact there, there were people who were, you know, protecting the um, the so we say the the uh, ideological hygiene of the conservative movement. This guy would not have a column. He would not be um, on a talk radio host. He would not be featured on Fox News. But all of those things are happening. So anyway, Kurt Schlichter, for too long, red state conservatives have offered to live and let live with blue state liberals. But the blues are evangelical Marxists who cannot allow us to provide a counterexample of freedom. Hmm. So no more. We must, by any means necessary, force them to be like us. No quarter, no compromise. Ban CRT, critical race theory. Ban Marxism and anti-American misinformation. Nationalize big tech and academia and mandate conservatism as their operational ideology. Ban leftist media and entertainment from spreading misinformation. Penalize barren, non-familial lifestyles through taxes and disqualification from political participation. Establish property and military service qualifications for voting. Increase America's carbon footprint. Ban masks. Dismantle unions. Use the law to enforce blue submission. Imprison dissenters. Force them to act against their deepest beliefs to keep their jobs. End all social programs and deport all illegals. Outlaw crime again. Seems kind of harsh. Now now he's trying to sort of like put this into the context, this rant. Seems kind of harsh, but hey, isn't this the flip side of what they want to do to us? So I'm unclear why they would object that it's wrong. They started it. Uh, his defense is, you, you see, I'm just, you know, saying this is what the left is doing. But this is sort of the paranoid victim card that justifies extreme reaction. I mean, this is... 
in some ways, the, the pure Eid. And you could dismiss it, except that you have Tucker Carlson over singing the praises of a fascist adjacent authoritarian leader in Hungary. Absolutely. And, and these are not two isolated voices. There are many others. I mean, uh, just, you know, a few weeks ago, you had Michael Anton, who was a former member of the National Security Council staff under Donald Trump and wrote one of the most uh, influential pro-Trump articles in 26, 2016, the Flight 93 election. Just a few weeks ago, you had Michael Anton on his podcast sponsored by the Claremont Institute, which is an influential conservative institution. Michael Anton and, and another guy on there were talking about, you know, the need for an American Caesar and how do you, American you know, Caesar. get a, get a, how do you get a dictator in power <laughs> who will enact the conservative agenda? I mean, it's so weird. Yeah. I'm, I mean, no, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. It is so weird for people who are going, oh, gosh, didn't, didn't you guys see this all along, Max? I mean, the answer is, and you've written about this, I've written about this. No. Um, you know, one of the things that we're watching is people that we used to know that used to be reasonable human beings. And I don't didn't know Michael Anton. Certainly, I don't think Kurt Schlichter was ever a reasonable human being. But um, we've watched this this weird transformation. And 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 I, I guess having watched the conservative movement embrace Donald Trump of the last five years, I'm not casual about watching them continue to move. I mean, you know, the trajectory is pretty clear where they're going here. All right. It is. And, and it's and I think, you know, the most frightening indicator is the extent of Republican support for the January 6th attack on Again, the Capitol. I, you, you, I want to I want to talk about that. And you know, okay. that's exactly yeah. where I want to go, because you wrote a column. Yes, Trump tried to stage a coup by denying it. The right is laying the groundwork for another one. And so I want to talk about that. But to, hey, let's take a break uh, first. And we're going to be back with Max Boot. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to the secret podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we're back with uh, Max Boot, who has a column in the Washington Post about January 6th. And I think what's really extraordinary, Max, is is how much we're learning on almost a daily basis about how serious Donald Trump was about overturning this election and the stories over the weekend about uh, his pressure on the Department of Justice and the way that he had a you know, an official in the Department of Justice who wanted them to write a letter to Georgia, you know, challenging the election. This stuff is really breathtaking. And, you know, I, I, I guess this is one of those those moments where you go, I thought it was bad, but maybe it was even worse than I thought. You know, no, I think our democracy had a, had a near-death experience and, and we did not realize how close we came to the abyss. Because, in fact, yes, these, these are these articles revealing that Jeffrey Clark, who was an assistant attorney general wanted to use the power of the Justice Department to basically send a signal to Georgia and other states that Biden won, that the state legislature could simply overturn the election results and appoint a slate of pro-Trump electors uh, to, to go to Washington. And, you know, if this had happened, it's not clear how it could have been stopped. This would have been a, a, a grave constitutional crisis. Now, you know, thank goodness that we had responsible pro-democracy Republicans like the acting attorney general in Washington or like the Georgia Secretary of State or others who stood up to this 
pressure from Trump, which was pretty blatant to, to overthrow the election results. But I don't know why anybody would be confident that in 2024, you're going to have Republicans who are willing to stand up to this, especially when right now the Republican Party is busy purging anybody like Liz Cheney, who will call out the big lie, or who will try to enforce accountability for what happened on January 6th. I mean, there are so many alarming opinion polls about the state of the Republican Party, but one of the most alarming that I've seen recently was a poll showing that a majority of Republicans describe what happened on January 6th as an act of patriotism and as a defense of freedom. I mean, they are basically uh, endorsing a violent attack on our institutions of government in order to uh, continue, you know, Trump's rule. Uh, that's that does not augur well for for the future of either the Republican Party or the American Republic. Well, well, that's why the moving of the Overton window is so significant. Because I remember uh, in in the fall reading an article that I think was published in the Atlantic that that laid out the possible scenario of overturning the election using Republican legislatures in Pennsylvania to do it. And I remember kind of thinking that sounded. Uh, you know, a bit much, a little bit uh, too too hysterical, uh, far fetched. And even after the election, I remember I got a phone call from um, uh, somebody who was very active in sort of the you know pro democracy movement, saying, "Hey, what do you think um, is going to happen in the Wisconsin legislature? Would Republicans in Wisconsin go along with this effort?" And I was pretty calm. I said, "No, I don't think so. I mean, they they may be, you know, you know." bag men for special interest groups, but they're not going to go along with all of this. So in other words, you know, it was very, it was unthinkable at that point. But with every passing month, as, as you describe, these attitudes, this idea about the election, about the, the role of legislatures is becoming more and more normalized. The pressure from the craziest elements of the base are becoming more intense. I, I Let me kind of tell you a little, um, just a slight anecdote. Uh, from my home state of Wisconsin, where uh, there's no doubt that Joe Biden won. Nobody seriously uh, contests the election. Um, the, the usual suspects, uh, there are some members of the legislature that want to emulate what they did in Arizona. They actually traveled down there. And uh, the speaker of the assembly here in Wisconsin is named Robin Voss. And I've known Robin for many years. And he's he sort of decided that he was going to feed the alligator in in the bathtub. So he put one of the <laughs> complete truth or nut jobs in charge of an election committee. Um, but he, you know, Robin himself is is not completely crazy. He's you know he's he's basically saying, "Let me appease you. Let me like I'll, I'll go through the motions. Um, I'll hire some ex cops. I will name a former Supreme Court justice to investigate this." But what's happening now? Is that the alligator has gotten big and it's coming out and, you know, guess what? It's, it's, it's devouring him. There was a rally over the weekend. All the nut jobs showed up. Sheriff David Clark showed up. They're attacking Robin Voss because he's not doing enough. So in other words, any effort to, to appease them fails unless you go completely crazy, unless you buy into it. Now, where are we, where are we going to be? by 2024 for people who, you know, you know, are kind of rolling their eyes about all of this. What will the pressure be on a Republican-controlled Congress when it comes to the Electoral College? What will happen if you have, if you don't have, you know, the Brad Raffensburgers in, in Georgia? In some ways, the January 6th coup failed because, you know, m you know, maybe they hadn't prepared for it enough. You know, I mean, the, the ground hadn't been laid. 
You know, Donald Trump would have done anything. He would have pressed any button to make it happen. But they didn't have their act together. I don't think you can be that confident that they won't have their act together in four years. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's why the outcome of the midterm elections is so incredibly important because, you know, obviously it's up to both houses of Congress to certify the election results. And of course, we saw even this last time around that a majority of Republicans in Congress refused to certify all of the election results. They tried to overturn the election results in certain swing states. Uh, you know, so imagine what happens if Republicans are in control of both chambers of, of Congress in 2024. They will have the power potentially to dictate the election outcome based on the kind of bogus charges of fraud, you know, that you are now getting from the Mike Lindells of the world. This is not an outlandish or crazy scenario. I mean, uh, you know, it's something we have to take seriously after what we've seen in, in, in the past year, and especially with the way that the Republican Party has decided that January 6th was no big deal and nobody should be held to account for it. That's a very dangerous uh, sign of, of where the party is headed. And it's, you know, as, as many have observed, the Republican Party now, you know, uh, has more in common with authoritarian right-wing parties like Viktor Orban's party or the or the ruling party in Turkey than it does with other conservative parties in, in, in liberal democracies in places wow. like Canada or France or Germany. Well, that's where it's heading, at least. I So for people who think that perhaps we're being too imaginative here, let me just read you this one uh, sentence from, I think it's the Business Insider Report over what we learned over the weekend. Jeffrey Clark, a Justice Department official appointed by former President Donald Trump, told senior officials that China used thermostats to change <laughs> ballots in the 2020 presidential election. <laughs> yes, the thermostats. Okay, so we've moved from the Jewish space lasers. I'm kidding about that. But I mean, we're moving from the Italian satellites. I mean, this stuff is so crazy. And yet it was, I mean, this stuff was coming from inside the house. So I, 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 again, um, I think, you know, there's a certain, you no know, two, you know, too cool for school attitude of the people say, oh, don't sweat it. It was not that bad. Um, okay, we dodged the bullet, but there were people who Donald Trump, this guy, Jeffrey Clark, Donald Trump wanted to name him acting attorney general, actually um, told him, I want you to be acting attorney general, it was only because there was a revolt within the ranks of the DOJ that he backed off. So we we were you know, several inches away from Having a guy who believed that China used thermostats to change the outcome of the election as the attorney general of the United States. Oh, yeah. No, I, I really think there is no room for complacency here. And we tend to think, oh, you know, U.S. democracy has been around for more than two centuries. It'll be around forever. I think that's a very naive outlook because I think we're seeing challenges to democracy and, and people turning against our democracy in a way that we have not seen since the 1860s. Uh, in, and, and that was not resolved peacefully, unfortunately. Uh, so do you want to talk about Andrew Cuomo at all? Because I kind of do. Sure. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, that, I, I, I find it, you know, I, I find it very interesting the more that we find out about how uh, awful his behavior was. <laughs> I mean, there's just no glossing it. Uh, his, his sense of entitlement and in, in abusing and harassing women. Um, the way he used his office to bully and intimidate people. 
and to a certain extent, the bullying intimidation was was well was well known. But what I was really struck by was reading the account. I think it was in the Washington Post yesterday. Or, you know, I'm sorry, I read so much stuff that's in the Post of the Times. The contrast between Cuomo's private behavior and all the things he was saying in public, that, that here's a guy who would come out on, um, you know, in you know, have press conferences about how he was a champion for women, that he was a champion for women's rights, that he was talking about, uh, you know, cracking down on harassment, uh, denouncing others. At the very same time, he was harassing women himself. And and I, I I think I think the fallout from this is going to be very damaging um, because guys like Cuomo, you know, create the the whataboutism narrative that you know is going to be played over and over again. I guess the good news, and I'm really struck by it, is I don't see any Democrats anywhere defending him. Do you? I mean, it's just it's nothing. It it is so completely different than the way the Republicans dealt with Trump. That's exactly right. I was about to just say that, Charlie, that it's a huge, huge contrast that Democrats show a willingness to hold Democrats accountable from President Biden on down. I mean, everybody is saying that Cuomo needs to resign. The, the, the Democratic-dominated state legislature is moving forward on impeachment. People are not saying this is fake news. They're not saying this is a plot by uh, by the right. They're not engaging in any of these kinds of excuses. That, that people on the right routinely do for Donald Trump. And, and remember that Donald Trump has done so many bad things that it's, or been accused of doing so many bad things, it's hard to keep track of them all. And of course, we tend to get focused on the fact that he's been impeached twice. He's tried to overthrow our democracy. He has mishandled a, a pandemic resulting in hundreds of thousands of needless deaths. And, you know, that's just, you know, the top line of, of his wrongdoing. But let's not forget, he's also been accused of, of sexual offenses, including sexual assault and rape by, by two dozen women. And of course, many of the very same Republicans and, and, and right-wingers who are saying Cuomo has to go have nothing to say about all the accusations against their idol, Donald Trump. No, I, I guess consistency is, is not required. Okay, in the time that we have left, you had a column the other day where you used, and I, I think this is an underused term, um, but the uh, nihilism that Republicans are not conservatives anymore. They are nihilists. And I, that, that word keeps coming up again and again to describe this new brand of, of politics. So what do you mean that they're not conservatives, they are nihilists? Well, conservatives in theory should uphold authority and order and, and traditional ways of doing things. And, you know, you saw that in the 1960s when conservatives were the ones who were speaking up and defending the establishment against the counterculture, against the liberals who wanted to tear everything down and who's, you know, you had people chanting, burn, baby, burn. Well, now it's Republicans who are, might as well be chanting, burn, baby, burn, because they show no respect for any institution that they do not completely dominate. They think that, you know, they, they, they run down the police. I mean, this was shocking to see the, the way that Republicans were mocking these police officers who defended the Capitol. Uh, but it's very similar to the way that, that, you know, Trump attacked the FBI, which is another institution that Republicans used to respect. Or Tucker Carlson is going after the military and calling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs a pig. 
and Republicans don't don't have any problem with that. They're you know they're going after universities, schools, media, corporations. Everybody is quote woke, so therefore nobody should be listened to. And of course, the worst example of that is on the pandemic. And and, and you cited like you know Rand Paul saying that everybody has to disobey the CDC. They can't arrest us all. I mean that's when you talk about nihilism. That's what I mean. That that is nihilism basically. You know just you know, screw authority, don't listen to anybody, tear everything down. Uh, and there and are no cares? standards. And then there are no standards. I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting. It, it doesn't matter what you said yesterday. Um, you can reverse it. You know, all that matters is, are you on my team or you're not on my team? If you're not on my yeah. team, you can be a decorated military officer. It doesn't matter. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to mock you. You can be a cop who was injured in the line of duty. It doesn't matter. If I said black, blue lives matter yesterday, I'm going to attack you. Um, I can I can call the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a pig and then suck up to Victor Orban and without blinking because nothing, you know, no, I guess I guess if you really don't believe in anything except the you know uh, the what what whatever will trigger the libs whatever right. will embarrass your opponents and it is extraordinary I mean just watching the you know sometimes these these debates about you know, you know uh, procedure or principles proceed as as if people actually believe them as opposed to using them simply as cudgels. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's yeah, like no, I, you know. there's a good there's a good example. I just came up in the last few days, a minor but telling example where just randomly last week on his on his show, Tucker Carlson, you know, said something like you know, like people like Max Boot and Anne Applebaum and the and the human rights community, Human Rights Watch uh, Freedom House, they have nothing to say about, you know, Chinese human rights abuses. They're all sucking up to China. Like, I'm scratching my head saying, what? When did we start sucking up to China? But then this <laughs> occurs like literally the day before Tucker Carlson is sucking up to Viktor Orban, who actually is sucking up to China, who is like the most pro-China ruler in in Europe. And even when, when Tucker did an interview with Orban, uh, Hungarian state TV edited out the parts right, where, where Tucker referred to Chinese human rights abuses. So nothing means anything. I mean, you can't take Tucker seriously when he says he's opposed to China. It doesn't matter. All he wants, in his case, all, all he wants, I think, is ratings. And he knows that he gets it by pushing the buttons of the far right and triggering the libs. And it's a strategy that works for him. It, it apparently does work for him, and Fox News is apparently comfortable with it. Uh, I, I suppose this is not the most important thing at, at all. It's it's sort of almost a kind of a well, it's slightly snarky, although it's 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 based on on substance. With uh, Tucker Carlson saying that Hungary is uh, so much you know is is more free than than America is, he's clearly not talking about the right to keep and bear arms. Normally, a Fox News host is like all in on the Second Amendment, right? This is the most important thing in the world, and the evil left are all gun grabbers. Well, it turns out that in Hungary, um, which obviously does not have a Second Amendment, uh, the gun rights are pretty shaky. They are they've really cracked down. So you don't want your Fox News audience to spend a lot of time talking about how Hungary is freer or trying to convince, you know, the right wing in the in America that Hungary is somehow a model. Um, if people, you know, take a look at exactly how they handle issues that they claim to care about. I guess this, again, is one of those things. Do you actually care about the issue, care about the rights, or are you prepared to jettison it if it's more convenient to use it as a cudgel? 
And that's the and that's where we get to this the, the denialism here. Max Boot, thank you so much for coming on. And I didn't hear a lot of uh, home construction behind you. I think uh, you know, no dogs barking on my end, and you know, no pounding and construction. Uh, well, what's on the your significance? End. What's the significance of the dog that didn't bark, though? That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm going to leave that, and people can <laughs> you know, discuss among yourselves. Max Boot, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.